Um, and as we transition um, into our sermon time, I would love to invite Brooke to read today's passage for us. This is the word of God. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Thanks, Brent. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good. It's good to see you uh, this holiday weekend, and it's good to see some sunshine. Hopefully, uh, you've got some plans to get out in the sun this afternoon, the rest of your weekend. Hopefully, you have a day off tomorrow. Uh, for anybody I've not yet met, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really thankful for Myung and his leadership in our community groups. It's been really exciting to see just so many more people uh, being able to get connected in, in recent months uh, in meaningful ways in relationships. And it's actually really applicable to what we're doing right now as a church family. If you've not been here, I know summertime, people come and go and missing some weeks. What we're doing, uh, we normally like to just take books of the Bible and, and walk through books of the Bible. And every once in a while, we'll stop and we'll focus in on a subject or a topic that's relevant to us as a church, something that is maybe more focused and, and, and we'll see what the Bible has to say about it. And so earlier this year, we did a survey of the church community and we were looking for areas of strength, areas of weakness, areas of health, and areas where we needed to grow. And one of the real areas that we found that we needed to grow is there were a lot of people in our church community who either didn't know what their spiritual gifts were or didn't know how to put them to use or how to, how to best use them. So we're taking six weeks and we're doing this sermon series called Gifted. And a few weeks ago, uh, the first week, we just looked at the one who gives the gifts, just who is the Holy Spirit. Because let's be honest, we with our selfish hearts could be tempted to focus on the gifts and not the one who gives the gifts. Amen? And so we always want to make sure our focus is on him, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the one who gives us the gifts. And so we looked at that. We, we the next week looked at there's just such a wide variety of gifts and a wide uh, variety of ways that God makes us and wires us. And, and that really without the unity that we have in Christ, that diversity could lead to some disastrous consequences. So that's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. Last week we looked at, there's about 20 gifts that are outlined in the New Testament. And last week we looked at 15 of them that I dubbed the more, Ordinary gifts, things that on the surface uh, are not all that flashy or, or overtly miraculous. Things like, you know, teaching or mercy or, you know, administration, uh, <laughs> that oh so popular uh, gift. And so we, we looked at the kind of the, the quote ordinary gifts. This week, we're going to look at the more extraordinary gifts, uh, things like prophecy and miracles and, yes, speaking in tongues. And let me say something just by way of introduction to maybe three groups of people who are here today. Some of you, when you hear me talk about these extraordinary type of gifts, 
Some of you have some fear. Maybe this has been outside of your realm of experience. Maybe this is something you've heard about, you've seen on TV, but you don't really know a lot about this or know what you believe about this. And you just, you just feel maybe a little bit of a wall going up as I even mention things like miracles and speaking in tongues. Others of you, and I'll use this word, I don't mean this pejoratively, some of you just have baggage. Uh, when it comes to the overtly miraculous, extraordinary looking gifts of the Holy Spirit, You've experienced some things that have either hurt you or jaded you or caused you to have some cynicism or disillusionment. Others of you here today, you're not Christians. You came because a friend, a family member, a coworker, somebody invited you. You came because you have questions about Jesus. You have questions about the Bible. You have questions about faith. And you're like, I just showed up at church on speaking in tongues Sunday. And you have some questions and concerns. To, to any of people in those, one of those three categories, let me just simply say one of, one of my sincere goals today is to try to help demystify some of these gifts and to hopefully, by God's grace, bring some healing or to bring some clarity where there needs to be clarity. And, 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 and I would just ask for all of you to do your very best as you're able to lower down those walls of defenses. If you're someone who's afraid, lower down those walls and let's go and see what the Bible has to say about these things. For those of you who have experienced hurt and you've got some baggage and some wounds, try your best by God's grace to lower those walls of defense and see if there might not be healing for you here in the word of God today. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, I would just encourage you to consider that maybe God wants to meet with you in a really unique way and show himself to you today. And so that's what I'm going to pray. And if you would be willing to jump in with me, uh, there is too much to get to in one sermon. This sermon alone could be a sermon series. And so I'm going to move really quickly today. There's lots of notes, lots of blog posts, whole sermon series, books, things I've recommended up on the website. You will inevitably leave with questions today. And as always, my email address is shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. You're welcome to send those emails. Uh, Pray for me if you would. I want to serve you well. Let's pray for our time together. God, I ask that you would send your spirit to be present with us uniquely today uh, in a way, God, that you help us to really see these gifts, their purpose, their function, their design, and and God, to see how they are meant to point us to the gospel of Jesus. For all of us, I pray that you'd give us soft and teachable hearts. For myself in particular, I pray that you'd guard my lips and help me to serve uh, this church family well today. Help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, the big idea of where we're going today is this. Yes, some of these gifts seem rather extraordinary to us. They're overtly miraculous. They're kind of wild, kind of scary. But we should not be surprised that God would do something miraculous because after all, we serve and worship a Savior who rose from the dead. Amen? We have a supernatural God and his, his ways are not our ways, we are told in the scriptures. And so we shouldn't be shocked and surprised that some of these gifts seem extraordinary to us. But right out of the gate, I just want to address the, how should we even think about these gifts? Okay, so let me say a few things. First of all, the Bible speaks very positively about these gifts. Speaking in tongues, miracles, prophecy. The apostle Paul says in you know, places like in 1 Corinthians, he says, you should earnestly desire these higher gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, 18, Paul says, I thank God that I pray in tongues more than any of you. Which I'm like, is this an encouragement or are you bragging or both? I don't really tell. 
you know, he says you should earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. The consistent picture of the New Testament of these overtly miraculous gifts of the Spirit is a positive one. And I say that because in our culture and in, again, with some of you, depending on your past experiences, and even in Seattle in particular, where cynicism is like a form of currency— you might be tempted to speak with a scoffing tone or a pejorative tone about the gifts themselves. So I just want to encourage you, be careful about that. Pfft, speaking in tongues. <laughs> yeah, prophecy. Just be cautious about that. I, I am totally sympathetic. I have experienced some very hurtful things in my past as well uh, related to these gifts, but let's seek to strike a tone that the New Testament itself would strike, which is one of these gifts are given to the church for the building up, the encouragement, the comfort, it even says. Can you get that? These gifts were given for the comfort of the church. You're like, I have not felt very comfortable when people were speaking in tongues. Like, I get it. But let's see the tone that God wants us to speak of these gifts. Number two, the Bible, I believe, speaks of these gifts continuing in an ongoing sense until the day that Jesus returns. There are good, Bible-believing, wonderful brothers and sisters of Christ who would disagree with me, but this morning I have the microphone, so let me share my perspective with you on this. Sometimes people will point out, both from experience, but they'll, they'll try to maybe point out even from Scripture, that, that these gifts were given just for a little while to get the church established, and then when we had the Bible and when the church was established, then those gifts kind of faded off into obscurity. They point to passages like in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter. You know, it says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Okay, so there is a time when prophecies will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And some people say, well, this is about the Bible coming. The perfect there, when the perfect comes, that's the Bible. And when we have the Bible, we don't need these prophecies or these more overtly uh, miraculous gifts. We'll have the Bible, and that's, that's just good enough. The problem is, you need to keep reading. If you go down below a little bit, it says, you know, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And most pastors, scholars, commentators, even people who don't believe that these overtly miraculous gifts should keep going would say, Paul is talking about the return of Jesus. When is it that we're going to see face to face? When is it that the veil will be lifted? When is it that we will know our Savior, not in part, but fully? When is that going to happen? Well, when Christ returns and we see the restoration of all things. And I would also point out to you that tongues will cease, prophecies will pass away, but knowledge will pass away. Just because we have the Bible, we don't need knowledge anymore. I don't think that that's the best reading of that passage. I think that we as Christians should expect for these gifts to be in operation in the life of the church until the day that Jesus returns. Now again, some would argue from experience, well, I've never really, I've never really seen these things. I've never seen these things happen. Well, the problem with arguing from experience is it cuts both ways, doesn't it? I've never seen these things happen. Well, I have seen these things happen. Great, let's fight on the internet, right? Like, <laughs> arguing from experience cuts both ways, right? You ever play that game, I Never? You, you know that game, I Never? And you get like a group of people together and you say things that you've never done and you're supposed to like kind of shock or surprise your friends. Like, so like, I've, I've never walked on the moon. And unlike Pastor Jamin, I believe that some people have walked on the moon, okay? I'm just kidding. I don't know. If, I'm just teasing him. Right? <laughs> but, 
just because I've never done something doesn't mean it's never been done, right? I've never had a seizure. And it'd be really cruel of me to say, well, you know, those people that are writhing around on the floor having those seizures, they're just trying to get attention. Ugh, right? I've never seen, I've never seen the movie The Goonies, okay? Can I just admit that publicly? I don't, I've never seen The Goonies. I don't, I don't really care. I'm going to go to my grave having never seen the movie The Goonies at this point. I don't care what any of you think about me, okay? And sure, some of you are like, oh, it's a great movie. You should see it. No, I don't, I don't want to. I don't care now. This, it's past. It's, I'm not 11 years old anymore, okay? Right? Just because you haven't done something or just have, because you haven't experienced something doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm sure that some of you have watched The Goonies and you enjoyed it. Fine. I'm not going to ever have that experience. Whoa, but wait, Pastor Aaron's, you know, they can be faked. And I've seen charlatans and frauds and absolutely, absolutely. But just because something can be faked doesn't mean that it's not real. I, you guys ever been to uh, Disneyland and been on that Indiana Jones ride? You guys know that one? Man, I love that ride. And we used to go on it you know, a couple times, took a family vacation there, went on it multiple times. And then the last time we tried to take the family to Disney, the stupid thing broke when we were like three quarters of the way through it and all of these like emergency floodlights came on and you could see that the snake was like just this big rubber thing. And we had to walk, we had to walk like on our own two feet, like walk all the way out. And it was a completely horrifying experience because I'm like, the magic is ruined. I'll never go on this ride again. I don't care. It's fake. It's fake. And then, you know, it's like a, a Humvee and you're like, and you're getting thrashed around, right? Then I went to Uganda earlier this year and we're in these buses and we're driving out on roads and we're thrashing around. I'm like, this is real. And if the bus breaks down, we're all going to be eaten by lions. That's what I was kind of telling myself. The, the, the idea that just because something can be faked doesn't mean that it can't also be real should, should resonate with you. Others would say, well, you know, those, those gifts were given to the New Testament church, to the apostles, just to the apostles, just so they could get the church established. That is true. The miracles did help to establish the church, but it's incomplete. First of all, the Bible doesn't say that those gifts were given to establish the church. It actually says they were given to build up, again, comfort and console the people. Also, other people besides the apostles used the the. the more overtly miraculous gifts. Just many examples. I could give you one in particular that I loved being reminded of this week as I was studying. You guys remember the guy Philip the Evangelist? He was the one that, you know, taught the Ethiopian man about Jesus and then got like teleported like Star Trek off somewhere else. It's a crazy moment. Well, later on in the book of Acts, it says that Philip had four daughters. And I'm like, this is my guy. Okay. Four daughters at home. And it says they all prophesied. Four daughters with the gift of prophecy. There was a lot of talking happening in that household. And I'm like, this is my mentor. I need to learn at the feet of Philip the Evangelist. But others besides the apostles use these gifts. And I would also just say, why would there be multiple chapters of the Bible written to give us instruction and guidelines and guardrails and things about these gifts if they're just going to be done in a few years? Why would there be so many chapters written in the, in the New Testament? Which leads me to the third thing I want to say about these gifts is the Bible gives clear guidelines and guardrails to these gifts. Because they are potent, because they are powerful, there are clear guardrails in place. And so we need to remember that. By the way, just thinking about 
whether or not these things actually happened. I, I don't want to read these whole quotes because they're long, but uh, put up this next slide here. There's uh, St. Augustine. You guys have heard of St. Augustine? Uh, lived in the late 200s, lived in Africa, a, a powerful writer, man of God, theologian. And in his book, The City of God, he says, what am I to do? I am so pressed by the promise of finishing this work that I cannot record all the miracles I know. He's like, I got this huge book. I'm trying to finish it. I don't have time to write down all the miracles I know. And then you know what he does? He writes down a ton of miracles that he knows. I'm like, bro, you could just stop explaining it and either tell us the miracles or move on. But he starts to write, if you go, go to the next one, he starts to write that if I, if I just wrote down only the miracles of healing in my own district of Kalama and Hippo, it would fill many volumes He says, I saw in our own times, I love this, this last sentence, frequent signs of the presence of divine powers similar to those which had been given of old. Similar to what we read about in the Bible, the St. Augustine says, we saw this stuff happening. And he's like, so much so I, I can't even, I can't even write them all down. I don't want people to remain ignorant of them. Charles Spurgeon, much more recent, but still 1800s, England, great preacher. He talks about times when he would point at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge about them and being able to say something that was so striking in its description that the people went away and said to their friends, come see a man that has told me all the things I ever did beyond a doubt. He must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. And this is Charles Spurgeon. This is a guy who is more devoted to the word of God and, and, and propositional truth and all this. He was not some flighty person. He's saying, but just sometimes he's preaching. He's like, that guy. And he'd point, right? It's like, so sorry, sorry, Aaron, you're in my line of sight, right? Like, I'm just kidding. You can breathe easy. I'm not that, I'm not that bold. We see evidence of these things happening throughout the entirety of church history. If you want to read more on this, I put up a four-part blog post on our website uh, from Sam Storms, a, a pastor and author who writes about these things. Let me just simply say this. I am convinced that one of the reasons why we don't see as many of the overtly miraculous, extraordinary gifts is simply because we've been taught and trained not to want them or look for them. We exist in a culture that is based on enlightenment and rationalistic philosophy, which says, unless you can touch it, see it, smell it, measure it in a laboratory, it's not real. We've been given to a philosophy known as naturalism. And so that's just what we've come to expect. We wouldn't expect anything else because that's just what we've been taught. It's actually interesting to see some of this in, in the book of Mark. It talks about Jesus going back to his hometown and nobody there believed in him. They didn't like, they're like, this is Jesus. We knew the kid. We knew him when he was the carpenter, you know, the carpenter's apprentice or whatever. And it says that Jesus could do no mighty work there. Well, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He is Jesus after all. But he could do no mighty work there, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Friends, I want to issue you a loving challenge that at least part of the reason that we don't see as many miracles, signs, wonders is because we simply just don't care. We have unbelief. We don't believe that God could do something that would just blow our minds. With that said, let's dive into these here. There's five, and we're really going to do four. I'm going to pair up the last two together. So let's start with prophecy. Prophecy. Big sounding. You know, how many of you want to stand up in your community group this week and be like, I have the gift of prophecy. It just sounds so intense. Let me hopefully demystify a little bit. Prophecy is simply hearing and communicating a divine message. Hearing and communicating a divine message. Few other things, handful of things I'll say about prophecy. First of all, 
Prophecy can be predictive, but it's often not predictive. Some of you, when you hear the word prophecy, you think, in the future, in one month, you know, I predict that the Mariners will make the playoffs. And you're like, you're crazy. I'm like, they said the prophets were crazy, and I'm sticking to, you know, right? That is crazy. But, uh, (laughs) right, you think about prophecy as about, like, future telling or fortune telling. Yes, in the Bible, sometimes prophecy is telling the future, but more often than not, prophecy is simply just saying, here is God's truth. Here is sin that we need to repent of. Here's what's going on in our day. Here is what God has said about himself and what God is like. It's simply communicating truth about God. Prophecy can be predictive, but it doesn't have to be. Also, I want you to understand there's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. I've spoken about this before, but just briefly. In the Old Testament, people who were prophets were divine mouthpieces, spokespeople for God. They would show up and say things like, this is what God says. And to disbelieve it was to disbelieve God himself. And oh, by the way, to speak wrongly, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 13, was capital punishment. If you led people astray, if you said, this is the word of the Lord, and then you were proven to be false, you could be put to death. In the New Testament though, well, actually, Before Jesus came, a prophet named Joel, he said this amazing thing. He says, hey, in the the latter days, in the the last days, God's going to do something unique where he's going to pour out his spirit on all people, young, old, men, women, even on servants, even on poor people. And they're going to dream dreams. They're going to have visions and they're going to prophesy for all of God's people are going to have the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus shows up. He dies. He rises again. And in Acts chapter two, Peter preaches this sermon in front of this huge crowd. He says, hey guys, do you remember what the prophet Joel said? It's happened. It's happened because of Jesus. Now, anyone who trusts in Jesus, repents of their sin, believes in him, you now have the Holy Spirit and you can now speak God's truth. Something happens in the New Testament where prophecy is just different. Actually, if you go into 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, hey, when people start prophesying, have two or three people prophesy, and then other people need to judge it and evaluate it and kind of sift through what they say. Or actually, if you look in 1 Thessalonians 5, similarly, Paul says, hey, when people get up and prophesy, don't despise it, let it happen, but you need to evaluate what it said. And then he says, hold on to the good. It's very interesting because if this was the Old Testament, he says, when people get up to prophesy, evaluate what's said, and if it's wrong, kill them. (laughs) Thank God for grace. But you see how prophecy operates different in the Old Covenant and now in the New Covenant. Because of Christ, because of grace, we all have the Holy Spirit. And we don't get to say, thus saith the Lord, but we do get to speak and communicate God's truth. Wayne Grudem, theologian and author, he, he helps us see, he says, we don't find in the Old Testament any instance where the prophecy of someone who is acknowledged to be a true prophet is uh, evaluated or sifted so that the good might be sorted from the bad, the true from the false. It's definitely something new that we see in the New Testament. So just to hopefully demystify a little bit, if you, if you might have a prophetic type of gifting, that does not mean that you are speaking, thus saith the Lord equivalent to scripture type of words. In fact, I want to show you my third thing is that in the New Testament, that word prophecy has a range. The word prophecy can mean scripture. Second Peter, the apostle Peter says, you know, no prophecy of scripture. Prophecy of scripture comes from someone on their own. It comes from the Holy Spirit, he says. 
But we also see in, like in 1 Corinthians 14, this idea of, well, we're going to do some prophecy and people are going to evaluate it. And we're not evaluating whether or not your prophecy should be in the Bible or not. We're just evaluating if this word that you're communicating from God is true. Even in the book of Acts, we see there's a guy named Agabus, which is a phenomenal name for any of you expectant mothers. Okay, Agabus. Agabus comes to Paul and he ties up his hands. He says, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up. And then Agabus says, you shouldn't go. And Paul goes, what you're saying is true. I am going to go. Well, that's not giving a scripture. That's giving like some instruction or, hey, God showed me this thing and I want to share it with you. Do you see that difference? There's a range of what the word prophecy means in the New Testament. It can mean scripture. So in that sense, nobody has that gift of prophecy. The word of God is, is um, complete in that sense but that he does still speak to us through impressions or through words. And, and we're too, and this is my fourth thing, is the giver's got to say it with humility. If you feel like God has spoken something to your heart and you want to share it, either with your community group or with an individual, please speak it with humility. I believe that it is unbiblical and wrong in the New Testament age to go up to someone and says, thus says the Lord. I think you've now crossed a line and a boundary that is not appropriate for New Testament believers in this age. But to say something, hey, I, I feel like God maybe put something on my heart. I want to share it with you. And then conversely, the one who's receiving it, you need to receive it with sober judgment. Is this true? Is this right? Is this helpful? Run it by the scripture. Does this disagree with the Bible anywhere? Run it by other people in your life or your community who know you well. Receive it with sober judgment. We actually had a, a thing this week, a conversation between my wife and I, where we were kind of working through some stuff and in the moment, I don't really know exactly how to describe it, but I felt like God just put something on my heart and it was a kind of a corrective word for me, and, but it was related to her. And, and I said it to her and she was like, I was like, I feel like God just told me this. And she's like, that sounds really good and really right on. And we were able to kind of have a moment. I don't know if I'd say I had a prophecy, but I just had this thing where God spoke to my heart. I said it hopefully with some humility. Did I? Was it? Okay, good. And she evaluated it soberly and we were able to grow closer together and be built up in our marriage because of it. And the last thing I'll say about this, about prophecy is, this might sound controversial, but everybody should desire the gift of prophecy. Every single one of you. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love, yes, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul's instruction to us as New Testament believers is that we would hear and communicate truth about God to one another. So that's my prayer. I, my prayer is that Sound City Bible Church, we would grow in operation in the gift of prophecy, not in some weird, crazy sort of way. Remember, we said naturally supernatural and not in some Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, you gotta start speaking in King James English. It's like, I just don't, I don't know why that happens. <laughs> but share the truth about God that he puts on your heart and, and speak it with humility and evaluate it soberly. Is that okay, Sound City? Can we do that? All right, all right. You guys are, you guys are acting nervous today. I don't blame you. I mean, I kind of do. Okay, miracles, okay? Let's talk about miracles. Miracles are an activity where God uniquely, uniquely demonstrates his power. I actually like, again, Wayne Grudem's definition. He says, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder. It's just one of those, whoa, what just happened kind of moments. And he bears witness to himself. So let me say three things about miracles. I think three, just a few, three, four, four things. 
Number one, miracles are different than healings. Healings are miraculous, but it's a broader category. When you think of miracles, think about different examples in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea or, you know, causing the sun to stand still or causing it to not rain, like, like miraculous. Sense. Actually, sometimes miracles can be the exact opposite of healing. Like when the apostles strike the man with blindness, right? That's not a healing. That's an anti-healing, but it was still a miraculous thing. Miraculous events can and still occur. Again, But by their definition, they're just less common. They're going to be more rare. By the way, let me just say this. I'm going to get this off my chest. Finding a parking spot is not a miracle. (laughs) Please stop, okay? I love you. It may be providential. It may be God's grace in your life. Certainly God is involved in everything and anything in our lives. But do not find a parking spot and be like, it's a miracle. No, it was going to happen. That car was going, it was going to move. It was going to move. It was not going to be there until the end of eternity. It was going to move and there was going to be a spot. It's not a miracle. Okay, thank you. Now I can sleep tonight. I love you. Just please stop. The second thing about miracles is they, they serve to mark out significant moments in redemptive history. So when you think about the sweep and the scope of the Bible, there's these different times where just a lot more miracles happen, right? Moses and Joshua, the the exodus of people out of Egypt and the entrance into the promised land, lots of miracles. And then we just finished studying the book of Judges. Were there really any miracles? It's a miracle that God used any of those people, that's for sure. Uh, Then you get into like Elijah and Elisha and and some of those prophets, lots of miracles. Then you get into, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, just really not very many miracles. Sometimes where there's a lot, sometimes where there's not a lot, they kind of mark out these significant periods of redemptive history. What I will say about this too, this is number three, where we see miracles operating today most commonly is when there's kind of an apostolic movement where the, where the God, I know that sentence probably just gave several of you an eye twitch. When people are taking the message of the gospel to unreached people groups, where there's kind of new uh, territory, new uh, conversations and communications about the gospel, very often that's where you see more overtly miraculous things happening. Uh, some of you actually know a woman uh, had attended here for a while, and she uh, grew up in an Islamic country where it was illegal to own a Bible or to be a professing Christian. Jesus appeared to her in a dream when she was a teenager, uh, and, and Muslims have a version of Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible is very different. And she spoke about this Jesus as he appeared to her in this dream to her father, who then beat her and locked her up for a period of time. I want to say about a week. She ended up fleeing the country. Uh, meeting Jesus, becoming a Christian, and, and now actually has opportunities to share the gospel in a country that's still extremely hostile to the gospel. We see things like that more commonly happening where there's an apostolic, a, a, a gifting of someone who's kind of moving into new territory, moving into new areas. Not capital A, apostle writing scripture, but apostolic gifting of being a messenger, being one who's sent. And then number four, I also just say this. Miracles might not be as effective as you think. Okay? Sometimes I, I feel like, uh, you know, if, if only I could just call down fire from heaven and really prove to these people that I could just, you know, right? Um, but Jesus had interactions multiple times with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You can see one such example in Matthew 16. He's like, I'm not giving you some miracle. I'm not, I'm, not your, I'm not your genie in a bottle. He didn't say that. But, you know, essentially, I'm not going to just perform a trick for you 
It's like, even if, even if, you, if you wouldn't believe the testimony of the prophets, he's not, you're just not going to believe it. I could call down fire from heaven. I mean, you're not going to believe it. Miracles might not be as effective as you think. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, which is I'm going to go into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and then I'm going to come back alive. And if that one doesn't get you, I don't know what will. So the gift of miracles is beautiful, is a wonderful thing, less common, still in operation, particularly in some, in some unique ways. And again, they might not be as effective as you think. Number three, gifts of healings. How are we doing so far? We're doing all right? All right, good. Gifts of healings. And this one is fairly self-explanatory. The, the restoration of sick and injured people's bodies. And I say bodies because when we talk about healings, we are talking specifically about physical healings. Yes, the gospel heals our soul, but that's not the controversial part. We're talking about people having their bodies healed. Let me say three things about healings. Number one, healings are a picture of the kingdom that is to come. When God created the world, he looked back on his creation, he looked out over it all, and he said, it is what? It's good. That God made his creation free from sin and free from sickness and free from death. And that because of humans' uh, rebellion and folly and wanting to be our own God, that we've basically left the front door open for all sorts of ravaging, destructive things to enter in through sin. There's sickness and there's death. That death is unnatural. Every time I do a funeral, I say that death is unnatural. It's not a part of God's created order. And we as Christians take heart because Jesus has actually overcome death itself, the greatest enemy to mankind. And so when we see sickness right now, it is a world that is out of order. And when God breaks in in a unique way and heals somebody's body, it's a picture of the kingdom that is to come. Because friends, I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus doesn't just want to save your soul. Sometimes the gospel is truncated into this simple thing of Jesus wants to save your soul. Yes, Jesus wants to save your soul. Yes, Jesus wants to take you to heaven when you die. But there's so much more to the gospel because Colossians 1 tells us that in Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things in heaven and on earth. And in Revelation 21, the picture at the end of the story is a loud voice booming out from the throne saying, behold, I make all things new. That is the totality of the gospel that Jesus wants to save your soul. He wants to save your body. He wants to save the entire cosmos. The whole thing is all to be made new. Now, right now, we're waiting for that day. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Any of you long for that day? Man, I long for that day. And in the meantime, when Jesus heals someone's broken body, it's a picture of the kingdom to come because guess what? There will not be any cancer in heaven. That's right. That's in my Bible, right? All right. Number two, let me say this about healings. This one's really nerdy and I'm nervous to share it with you, but I think it's important, so please follow me. Um, I don't believe that there is one singular gift of healing that you have. I believe there are gifts of healings. And it's grammatically based. If you noticed in our Bible, our scripture reading today from 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about gifts of, and in our English version, it says healing. I love the English standard version. I love this translation. It's very helpful, very reliable. I think they got it wrong on this one. If you look in the Greek, the word is yamatan, 
plural healings, gifts of healings. Now, you're saying to me, this is all very nerdy and not that interesting. Where are you going with this? Here's why I think this is important, and here's why I think God put this in the scriptures. Of all of the gifts that could be used to prey upon other people, healing is one of the greatest ones. Throughout history, the quote-unquote faith healer or the healing man can be used to take advantage of people who are in desperate straits. You guys know what I'm talking about. People giving their last dollar, giving their, uh, you know, everything, traveling to far off lands to meet with the, the miracle man who has the gift of healing. And I think that God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty chose not to give out a gift of healing to a specific person, but he gives out gifts of healings to his people at various times. I remember there was a website. This is funny, but it's not funny. There was a website at one point. It's not there anymore. It was called christianmiracleprayer.net. And if you gave a gift of $7.77, and there was a Y777, and they literally, the website literally said, because seven is God's favorite number, if you give a gift of $7.77, we will send you your miracle healing prayer. And I never did it, and I wanted to so bad. And now the website's gone. I guess, I guess nobody could heal their website. I don't know. I, no, I was bad. I'll fix that. I'll, fi- I'll take that out. Sorry. I believe that God gives, instead of like the gift of healing, like giving your kid like a bicycle that they can just use over and over again, I think that the gifts of healing is more like, you know, giving them quarters at an arcade or something that they can use at different times. I think that gifts of healing are available to any and all of God's people who will pray and who will ask. And I think that God safeguarded us in his love and in his sovereignty against this idea of the faith-healing, miracle-working man. Because that causes a lot of damage and a lot of hurt in people's lives. And when we ask for healing, number three, we should ask with faith and humility. It's a balance. It's a balance. James, in the book of James, in verse four, or sorry, verse two of chapter four, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. So sometimes we're sick and we're not healed. Why? Because we don't ask. Jesus himself said, you can ask anything you want in my name. Ask with faith. And then in verse three, though, James says, by the way, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's a balance there. Some people, when they pray for healing, they sound like they're bossing God around or giving him orders. That's disgusting. That's just, that's just wrong. God, we call you to do this. And it's just, it's like this. Who are you talking to? Other people come to God and it's like they're groveling. It's not like they're talking to their loving father. It's like they're groveling like for the person at the post office to give them some stamps. Like, please, if you're not too busy, God, if you could possibly give us some, I don't, what, your will, your will, your will. It's like for crying out loud. <laughs> ask with faith because Jesus said we can ask. He said we can ask. He said that we have access to God like our loving Heavenly Father and ask with humility because he doesn't owe us a darn thing. But he's loving and he's gracious and he's merciful. And even if he chooses not to give a gift of healing right now, today, in this moment, guess what? Sin and death doesn't get the last word because we have an eternity that's free from all of that. Amen? So let's ask with faith and with humility. If I was to... um, assess Sound City Bible Church, which way do we drift? I don't think we drift the too presumptuous, too much faith thing. I think we are more likely to drift into the too much humility, too much. I I feel like we could grow in our expression of genuine faith as we ask God. That's my, that's my opinion. That's what I would share with you on that. 
All right, last one. Here's what you've all, this is, the, this is what got you up out of bed this morning. I want to talk about tongues and interpretation. Yeah. Okay, let me read a definition from Anthony Hokema, a scholar and, and Bible commentator. He says this, tongue speaking or glossolalia, if you want to use a $22 word at your community group this week, is a spontaneous utterance of sounds, as I all of a sudden can't talk, that's ironic, a spontaneous utterance of sounds in a language the speaker has never learned and does not even understand. Okay, tongues. Probably of this list, not probably, almost certainly, the most controversial, the most divisive among Christians today. Again, I want to demystify a few of these things. Number one, the Bible speaks of two different types of tongues. And by the way, we say tongues, it, it just means languages. The word in the Greek, it was the word tongue, like the, the literal physical tongue in your mouth, is the same word for languages. And we still use that a little bit today. Two types of tongues. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. You guys know the 1 Corinthians 13? The love chapter, right? The love chapter that people read at their weddings on their blissful wedding day, not realizing that it is sandwiched between two of the sharpest rebukes maybe in the entire Bible. Like, let's read that love rebuke chapter at our wedding. Like, go for it. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think that is a helpful interpretive guide. Tongues of men and of angels. Tongues of men. Speaking in a language that human beings speak. Just as simple as that. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit meets with the disciples. They're all gathered in the upper room. They were kind of fearful. Jesus has ascended. They don't know what's next. The Holy Spirit just comes on them. What do they do? They rush out of the room. And they're in Jerusalem. And, and everybody is in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. They're all there to worship. It's this festival. It's the feast. And the people go out there and then they start just like, blah, 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 and they start talking in all these different languages. What did, what did people accuse them of? Being drunk. Like what is going on with these lunatic Christians? They just came running out of the room and they're all speaking in these languages. Are they drunk? And it's like nine in the morning. Like what are these Christians into? Okay. And Peter stands up. He says, nope, they are not drunk. And then people started noticing, wait a minute, I am hearing about this Jesus guy in my native language. Here I am visiting from Greece. Here I am visiting from Rome. Here I am visiting from Syria. Here I am visiting in Jerusalem. And some smelly fisher person is now speaking to me in my native language. How did this poor, uneducated fisher person learn my language. And it's a miracle of the spirit where God spoke the message of the gospel in various human languages. It was amazing. That's one way that the Bible speaks about tongues happening. And actually, I'll tell you, um, I have not witnessed this personally. I have a very good friend whom I know closely, I trust uh, explicitly, was in a church service where they practiced people would just get up and deliver words in tongues. Somebody stood up and started speaking in tongues and two men who were visiting from Africa stood up in the back of the room and said, how did you know to speak to us in our language? And my friend says, you know, to this day, he's like, I have no idea what happened. I just know I had a lot of goosebumps, okay? And they were able to communicate. I, again, that could happen. Again, maybe on the fringes of where the gospel is going into new Areas, but there's another type of tongues that the Bible speaks about, the tongues of angels. 
1 Corinthians 14.2. By the way, there's like a billion scripture references. They're all up on the notes on the website. If you want them, they're all on there. If you are a note taker, I hope you limbered up first. But um, 1 Corinthians 14.2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. That's different, is it not? So one is to speak to men and one is to not speak to men. One is to speak to God. Secondly, about the gift of tongues, particularly in that type of tongues that people, uh, the, the, the tongues of angels or a divine language, they can't operate publicly without interpretation. Someone must have this gift of interpretation. 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28, Paul says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or most three and each in turn, so you go one at a time, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. That's a pretty strict guardrail, is it not? It's a pretty strict guardrail. Nope, you cannot do that publicly unless there is someone who is proven to have the gift of interpretation. Now, in our Sunday morning corporate gathering, uh, we're probably not going to practice this very much. I think the best place to practice it would actually be in Trevor and Elizabeth's new community group. What night do you guys meet? <laughs> try, people come try out tongues at your group? All right. That's fine. I just made Trevor itchy. Sorry, bro. How, how do you know if you have the gift of interpretation? Well, you're just going to know. There's no online quiz that you're going to be able to answer but God's going to use you in that way to be able to interpret it. I, I would say this, and this will be the, the third and last thing I would say about the gift of tongues. If you have the gift of tongues, if God has, has given you that operation of that spiritual gift, I believe based on what the Bible teaches that the best use of tongues is in private times of prayer. The best use of that gift is in personal, alone times with the Lord. If you want to learn more about this, or if you're like, well, wait, is that right? Just read 1 Corinthians 14. Read the whole chapter. He starts out by saying, brother, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how am I going to benefit you unless I also bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? He goes on to say, he's like, look, I could speak 10,000 words with tongues. He's like, it's better to just speak 10 words that people would understand. He actually goes so far at the end of the chapter, he says, if you are speaking in tongues and non-Christians come in, they're going to think you're crazy. That's in the Bible. That's what he says. And we're all like, Thank you, because I felt that way the first time I heard someone speaking in tongues, right? He says, look, you need to be able to speak prophecy and speak truth so that their hearts are going to be convicted and they understand what's being said. I believe, based on 1 Corinthians 14 in particular, that the best use of this gift is in your own personal private times of prayer. But remember what I said at the beginning. Let's not snicker about these gifts. Let's not denigrate these gifts. If you are someone who prays in tongues, you might feel nervous admitting that in front of your community group. Not, not just in our church, but in our community group, in our culture, in our city. It, it might be hard for you to say, yeah, I, I pray in tongues. So my hope and my prayer is that this week you find it safe to be able to speak up and say, yeah, I, I, I pray in tongues. God's given me that gift. There's a lot, a lot more that could be said about this gift. No, you don't have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. No, uh, you don't have to have some special second blessing to get the gift of tongues. I think those things are basically indefensible in Scripture. There's much more I, I could say, but I don't want to say them right now because I want to say this. All of these gifts, prophecy, miracles, healings, tongues, are not simply random gifts given just to impress us or just to shock us or just to keep us on our toes. No, 
these extraordinary gifts are actually given to point us directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this prophecy, the communicating of a good news. What better message do we have to receive and to communicate than the message that God loves us, that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and to rise again, to give us new life and to give us hope and to give us forgiveness. That's the best message we could ever hope to communicate. Amen. And, and the gift of miracles is given to prove to us that when, when, when Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. And we see a miraculous gift. It proves to us that God's not just blowing smoke. He actually has the power to save us. Amen? And the gift of healings goes to show us that, that God is not only concerned with saving our souls, but he's in the business of restoring all things unto himself. And one day when Christ returns, the end of the story, is that we will live with him forever, free from sin and sickness and devastation and death forever. Amen? And the gift of tongues is given to show us that this message is for all people. It is not just for Jews. It is not just for rich. It is not just for men. It is not just for one particular group or socioeconomic. It is for anyone under the sun to hear and receive the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is why the gifts are given to us. This is why they are to be in effect in the church and any use of the gifts that points us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ is out of bounds for us as Christians. This is what it's about. This is what it's about. Let me simply close with this. Please, friends, don't despise the gifts. Celebrate them. Don't despise them. Don't don't fall into the the cynical, sneering, jaded perspective. Don't, Don't despise them. The Bible explicitly tells us don't despise these things. Celebrate them. Number two, don't misuse the gifts. Be careful. God's given us in his grace so much instruction and wisdom and guidelines to follow. Don't misuse the gifts. And then number three, don't be prideful about the gifts. Because guess what? Even if you've been given those gifts, they're not yours. They're God's. And if nothing else, they don't prove how strong we are because we have those gifts. They prove how weak we are and how much we need our Savior. Wayne Grudem says it well. He says, probably the most important and most difficult lesson for us to learn is that ultimately spiritual gifts are not our presumed strengths and abilities, not something that we have or even that we've been given, but what God does through us in spite of ourselves and our weakness. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God, I thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. Ordinary, extraordinary, any and all of them, God, the point is to bring you glory. The point is to help people grow in their relationship with you. The point is that people who are far from you would come to know your love and your grace. God, I ask and pray now as we go into a time of singing and celebrating the Lord's table and responding to your grace, I pray we would do so with joy and you'd help us to have our hearts and our minds focused on Jesus above all else. And it's in his name we pray, amen. I want to call us to a time of response now. And we're going to respond as we do in a variety of ways. The, the, the beginning is we're going, to, we're going to give. We're going to give of our finances. And as we do so, we'll welcome our younger students class in to join us. Also invite our musicians to come up to prepare to lead us. If you're a guest or a visitor, please know there's no pressure or obligation or guilt to give. But we simply want to invite you to give as an act of worshipful response to the God who's given us so much.
while they're collecting the offering, let me read a few discussion questions, okay? Things that we should talk about this week in our groups. Number one, what has been your experience with these extraordinary gifts? So let's talk about it. Have there been good experiences, bad, how they helped you, how they hurt you? And then number two, do you have or think you have any of these gifts? And if so, how is Jesus asking you to put them to use? Number three, how are these extraordinary gifts not an end in and of themselves, but they serve to point us to the gospel of Jesus? And then lastly, if you haven't already done so, would you please take that online assessment? It'll just help you. It's, it's not infallible. It's not some like stamp that goes on you. It's just a conversation starter to help you see, yeah, these are ways that God has gifted me. And by the way, the gift of miracles is not one of the responses you'll get on the online test because you don't need the web to tell you that. Just, just do something. Okay, uh, prayer points. Read through 1 Corinthians 12, 31 and pray that God would help you to earnestly desire these gifts, including the extraordinary ones. And then number two, pray that God would use all our gifts, ordinary and extraordinary, for his glory, for the good of our church, and to reach the lost. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. They'll begin handing out the elements. I invite you to hold on to it. We'll have a moment to reflect before uh, the band leads us in song. But let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to turn our hearts to the celebration of the Lord's table. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, all of this talk about spiritual gifts, don't stop short of what the point is. The point is not the gift itself. The point is this broken bread and this cup that we're about to drink from, the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is an opportunity to check your heart if there's sin to be repented of. Or things that God just wants to do in your life, do in your heart, examine your heart. For those of you who are here who are not Christians, communion is for Christians. But you are welcome today to give your sin to Jesus and receive his grace and his forgiveness and join us at the table for the first time. As we finish passing out the elements, let me pray. And then we'll reflect together. And then in a moment, Pete and the the band will invite us to stand and sing. God, we thank you for the many gifts that you give to us. And God, the greatest gift of all is salvation. And I pray that all of us would seek to let you use these various gifts in us in a variety of ways that would strengthen the church and would point people to Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.